What does the French army, a Habsburg Archduke, and a pair of Italian strongmen have to do with the birth of Lucha Libre? Well, strap in, gang, because we've got a crazy story for you today. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Oh my God, we are back. We are back, everybody. It's another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Thank you so much for everybody who's been along for this journey. My name is Nick Gossard. I am a wrestling promoter, but more important for the moment, I am a history nerd. Put those things together, we have pro wrestling history nerds. I have no sense of smell. I have an intense fever. We're all sharing the same beer. Hopefully that turns out well. And I'm here with Chongo Bronson. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the party. A time travel through rock and roll debauchery and pro wrestlingification. My royal self thanks you for tuning in. Downloady do pod beanificate. And ooh, it looks like we have a guest star today. Yeah, we do have a guest. We are joined by local lucha sensation Electro. How the hell are you? Que rollo, que rollo gente. How y'all doing? I'm glad to be here. Glad to be with you guys. And let's get this party started. I wanted this man on here for a little authenticity, somebody to correct me when I'm wrong, somebody to laugh at me when I mispronounce, and I feel like we're all going to have some fun stories to tell tonight. Oh, this is going to be a deep, deep dive down the rabbit hole of the Lucha Libre, south of the border, Mexican pro wrestling style tonight. I'm excited, Daddy. That's right. We are going to be diving into the deep waters, the early days, the very origins of when wrestling in Mexico came together, that proto style of Lucha Libre that leads to all the magic you see on TV today. That's right. Back when Mil Mascaras was barely one mascara. <laughs> me like a number that's like a million uh, so he's basic his name basically translates to the man of a million masks or the man of a thousand masks oh that's cool i didn't even know that well see you're learning stuff already um and speaking of learning stuff you're gonna hear stories today or tonight depends on what time you're listening that you may say, hey guys, that's cool, but I heard it this way, or that's interesting, but I read in a book that this happened instead, and you know what? You probably did. Wrestling tradition is an oral tradition. These are stories that were not written down. These are not stories that were well-documented. We're working from source material, word of mouth, old newspaper clippings. We're doing the best that we can to put together the best truth we can find. And if you hear a different version, by all means, send us an email, shoot us a Facebook message. We'll even put you in our top eight on MySpace. Yeah, feel free to start your own pro wrestling history podcast so we can give you a bad Yelp review about how we heard it different too. That's right. One star for y'all. Do not recommend. So today, we're going to be talking about the early days of Lucha Libre. And before we jump into that, I just want to thank everybody for the kind words, the reviews, the messages saying, I'm enjoying what you're doing. I'm glad that there's an audience. I'm glad that you're part of this audience. And let's just keep that uh, that ball rolling. Tell a friend, tell a non-friend, let an enemy know. They might need to uh, improve their lives by learning about pro wrestling. So let's get the word out there. Let's make pro wrestling history nerds a, uh, you know, we're not going to be a top 10 iTunes download, but by all means, let's 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 get the word out there. Let's let people know that we're doing something cool here and we're doing the coolest thing possible, and that's learning. That's yes. right. So if you love wrestling, if you love all things wrestling, even if you find it interesting, give it a listen. 
So how did we come to this? You turn on your TV, you see Rey Mysterio on WWE television, you watched your favorites on Lucha Underground. If you're one of the cool kids, you're watching CMLL or AAA on YouTube or whatever channel you can find it on. High flying, hard hitting, crazy masked action. But where did it come from? How did it get to this point? And to find out, we get in our time machine to go way back to 1861. That is right, 1861. Because in 1861, France invaded Mexico under the pretext of forcing the Mexican government to pay international debts. Politics already. I know, we're all tired of politics, but we have to start here for an important reason. From the beginning. Because France invaded Mexico under tenuous circumstances, they weren't really being on the up and up. What they actually were there for is to overthrow the government and create a client regime that was subservient to France. They installed an emperor, Maximilian von Habsburg, that's right, of the Habsburg dynasty. Read about them. It is a crazy history of power, power struggles, and inbreeding mutations. It gets crazy, Google it, you'll find out. And they were empowered by the aristocracy and the Catholic Church in Mexico because they were there to exploit the mineral resources and hosted the French army on Mexican soil. While the Second Mexican Empire was overthrown within six years and the emperor executed, the French army introduced a gift to Mexican culture that defines it to this day, and that was wrestling. Yeah, one of the things that we see time and time again coming out of this time period, because very similar time period in the United States, we're going through the Civil War and the thing that you see, the common theme, is that wrestling, different styles, it's a melting pot of different styles from these soldiers in these camps. They're wrestling to keep their skills sharp, to, to pass the time, and these wrestling traditions are getting passed on. It's almost like a language, like, like whether you're talking about cooking or music, the, the, the art of wrestling is getting passed on through these military camps. And it's really interesting how, how it took root and it blossomed into what we see today as Lucha Libre. That's right, that's right. Because if you're a real Lucha Libre fan, you know the roots and the bases of Lucha all come from Greco-Roman wrestling. Whether it don't matter if you're just doing a three-quarter roll, how we call it, or if you're diving to the outside with a plancha, it all starts with Greco-Roman wrestling. Let's take a little detour. For those of you who may not be familiar with Lucha Libre outside of the occasional masked wrestler in WWE, AEW, Impact, or when you saw the Lucha Invasion in ECW and WCW back in the 90s for us old people, you may wonder what is the difference? There are differences, mostly similarities, because grappling, as we've talked about, is a universal language but there are different rules. Um, hey, Electro, you want to go over some of the differences in rules and structure between American pro wrestling and Lucha Libre? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the big differences that I see is during tag matches, whereas in traditional American wrestling in a tag match, you would have to tag your partner in order for them to come in and say, help you out per se. Whereas in Lucha, your partner could just run in help you out, double team the dude, and basically beat him up. The ref will give you the count, but again, it's it depends on the, the rules and how, let's say the stipulations of the match. For example, if you're going one-on-one -on -one with a person, 
um, we could do like a, what they call it a bull terrier match, which is where you're chained up. Both wrestlers are chained up on the neck and you have to touch all four corners in order to win. In American wrestling, um, I have seen a match where it was almost the similar rules, but at the same time, you still had to pin the guy to win. And the one thing I, you know, touching on the tag rules, one thing I actually do like more in Lucha than in American style wrestling is in American style wrestling, you have to make that physical tag to make somebody the legal man, as opposed to in Lucha where sliding out essentially counts as a tag. So, you know, you don't have to make that physical contact. I think it, even though it does take away from a certain build of excitement sometimes for that hot tag, it can keep the action moving at a higher pace when it's just one person slides out or is knocked out of the ring, boom, the guy hops the ropes and we have the next guy running in as the legal man. Not as complicated a rule set. So yeah, so we do have in sometimes more complicated rules, not necessarily too complicated. Like instead of a 10 count on the outside, we do a 20 count. 20 count, that's right. You know, which is, uh, you know, gives a lot more time to brawl in the crowd, makes it a little more exciting. You know, hardly ever does a referee on a 20 count have to go out and say, hey, you idiots, get back in and finish this match on the inside. Certainly never happened during a three-on-three match at an event center down on Federal that you were involved in and I was refereeing. That is right. That is right. Um, when that uh, that whole event, dare I say, it was a huge clusterfuck and it got way out of hand to the point where uh, the referee basically said, you know what? Screw you guys, I'm going home. Cartman style. I have done that several times. Uh, a lot of times with you, even though it's never been your fault, you always seem to be the witness to me saying, F this, I'm out. Enjoy your show on the corner of Federal and whatever the hell and that whatever was. Whatever the hell that other store was. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to make this too much of inside baseball jokes. Uh, but one time uh, we were both on a show. It was supposed to be a festival. There was like 15 children watching and we didn't have a backstage. It was just a truck, and for ring entrances, the technicos, or the good guys, got out of the driver's side, and the rudos, the bad guys, got out of the uh, passenger side, basically. And I'm using these terms, technicos and rudos. Uh, Mind filling in the uh, the listeners? Yes, that's right. For those of you that don't know, technicos are basically the baby faces, the good guys, and the rudos are the heels, the bad guys. So, technico means uh, it rough, it technically translate to that technical like the guy's more technical he's more precise with his moves whereas rudo translates to well rude or basically doesn't give a f about the rules and does whatever he can to win so i have a question for you little chap how would you say sort of psychologically and stylistically a rudo would differentiate from uh what an american fan would consider a traditional heel like, how does the Technicos and Rudos differ from a traditional American baby face and heel? So, uh, there's not, I don't notice much difference between a baby face and a Technical, but Rudos, uh, what I see more is the heel works, um, he gets the people riled up in the ring, whereas the Rudo doesn't care, he gets out of the ring and he goes up to fans face to face, talks to the fans, basically is more engaged with the fans. And to some points where, from experience, they have actually hit me. Oh, yeah. Because they get too, they get so emotional within the match and they just hate your guts and want to see you lose. 
that sometimes they might hit your real heat, brother. Real heat. That's right. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, the French army camps during the Franco-Prussian War were hotbeds of Greco-Roman wrestling competitions. We talked about this when we discussed William Muldoon. And that trend continued during the occupation of Mexico. French wrestlers started popping up as attractions on the Mexican carnival circuit, mirroring the challenges and scams practiced in Europe and America like we discussed in the last episode. There are stories of French strongmen wrestlers issuing challenges to the locals using derogatory language to insult them, only for a Spanish catch wrestler posing as a local Mexican peasant, city goer, farmer, however they're uh, deciding to do things, to answer the challenge, having been planted in the audience when the gates open. So the, I hate the local people, I am a foreigner, We've seen this work in pro wrestling forever, whether it was a French wrestler talking trash about the Mexican locals only for a Spanish-speaking champion to stand up, or for the traveling carnivals in America like we discussed last time, onto situations where we look at the Iron Sheik, uh, you know, the various Russians or fake Russians uh, who popped up in the 80s. National identity and wrestling creates very good chemistry, heat, drama, and especially in a time and place where the French army was occupying Mexico. There was a puppet government held up by the French forces. So that makes this even more dramatic, even more emotional. So you can imagine how the crowds would, first of all, react, and second of all, bet. Yes, exactly. The bottom line in this business, two things above all else draw money. You either have somebody that the audience wants to live vicariously through and see kick somebody's ass, or you have somebody that they want to see get their ass kicked. And these guys were French. They were in, they were in the invaders. These guys were, they had invaded their home. They were occupying their homeland. And who would you rather see get their ass whooped than, than some bully in your, you know, holding court in your town? It's a perfect recipe for the for the classic Carney hustle, and it just shows that nothing, no hustle is new under the sun, darling. Oh, absolutely, yeah, because right. because you know, as we've discussed, it's about money. You either it's about the bets being made at the circus, at the carnival, at the theater when it's presented as a legitimate contest, or it's about selling tickets down the road for a bigger match. And that was true in legitimate matches and legitimate fights as it is today. It's also very good for when it's theatric, worked matches to build things up. It's pro wrestling 101. It's one of the foundations of the sport and of the performance art. That's right. And a perfect example of that now that I... Um Going back to the whole invasion uh, part was uh, in AAA, Los Gringos Locos, who was Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero, who came in representing the U.S. And they came in in their entrance waving American flags, wearing the American flag in their gear. Code, yeah. And as they're making their entrance, you could see on TV people throwing cups, throwing paper, throwing whatever they want at them. Why? Because they were the enemy. They were the bad guy. They were the invaders. So whatever Tecnico or whatever, even the Rudos team that came out, would they were getting cheered because it was basically the invasion of the US on Mexican soil. People don't understand how emotional wrestling can make you. There are people who are just like pro wrestling, the silly thing where the guys in their underwear pretend to fight, but 
It's theater. It's drama. It's combat sport. It's war. It is all these things combined, and it is a perfect recipe for drama, for emotional reactions. And we're not even talking about the old days when it was legitimate competition, as we say, for the most part, where something like this, where it was legitimately an occupying force going around trying to bully the locals. We can even look at situations like Puerto Rico in the 70s, where somebody tried to drop a car battery on Dutch Mantel's head during his ring entrance because they hated him so much. We're recording here in the Oriental Theater, the home of Lucha Libre and Laughs, and one of my favorite things to see is groups of people come in, they've never been to wrestling before, the first match starts, and you see them being like, what a weird thing we're looking at. What is this? By the end of the match, they are screaming, they are booing, they are cheering. It has found a way into their hearts. And I'd like to think it stays there forever. Yeah, I think that the, the true artistry of professional wrestling and the storytelling is the emotional elicitation of the audience, taking them on that ride, making them feel, making a guy who was talking shit when he walked in the show that he's never come to a pro wrestling show. He thinks this shit is fake and he's talking that shit when he comes in and he's the guy booing the loudest. We yeah. got him. You know what I mean? That's the art and that's the emotional elicitation that this art form can draw from people. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about Lucha Libre is the cultural embrace and the, the passion that Lucha Libre elicits from the people in Mexico. Yeah, and the thing is, even people who don't like lucha, but they know who the luchadores are. They know their names, they know what their masks look like. Even if they uh, say jokingly, like, oh, I don't like that stuff, like that stuff's stupid. But next thing you know, they come back talking to you like, hey, so did you watch the show last night? Like, did you see this dude do that? Like, dude, I thought you didn't like it. He's like, no, but I watch it's kind of interesting. Like they get invested. And we have, uh, I, I, I say every luchador says it. Um, in Spanish, it's, sin ustedes no somos nada, which basically translate, without you guys, we are nothing. Yeah. And it's talking about the crowd because, why? Because the, the reason we're all doing this, it's because of the crowd. Yeah. Lucha Libre, despite having French occupation roots, became a deeply held cultural touchstone in Mexico, but it had a little ways to go before we got there. During the occupation, we see the first recorded wrestling tournament in Mexico, which was organized at the Palacio de Buena Vista in Puebla to celebrate the wedding of an important general during the occupational war. And that's exactly how you pronounce that name. I did it. <laughs> and it was witnessed by the newly installed emperor. This was a big deal. The competition paired wrestlers from the French army versus members of the French Marines and Navy. Greco-Roman rules and the spectacle gave wrestling a boost of prestige in Mexico that it had been lacking up until this point. Up until now, it was a carnival sideshow. Now it is a sport being presented in the middle of this Mexican palace as the entertainment during the wedding of a highly political general, the fucking emperor of Mexico, yeah. whose reign was short-lived, but hey, he was there watching this. This is a lot of pomp and circumstance. This puts a lot of light on wrestling. And now it has a little something it uh, didn't have. It has prestige. It has dignity. It has an a cultural excitement, if you will. Yeah, and it gave the people that were starving for an outlet, a cathartic 
outlet, you know, violence, performance art, violence. It gave a the perfect artistic forum platform to express the rage that the people felt at the time by this occupation. Yeah, something to help them get those emotions out, like you were saying, like an outlet to help them cope with whatever they were dealing with at the time. The first Mexican wrestler on the record was Don Antonio Perez de Perian, who competed under the name Alcides de Mexico. What does that mean, Alcides de Mexico? It's somewhere between, I would think Hercules or Sam, like, like someone with strength. And that's what he was going for. It was a time when, uh, Greek mythology really connected with Mexican culture at this time. I, I don't have more details on that concept. I just know it was. So Alcides was impressed by the skills of the French Greco-Roman wrestlers and was able to learn the grappling art from some soldiers he was friends with, as is the custom. He took his skills to the circuses, carnivals, and theaters, putting on feats of strength and acrobatics before putting on an open challenge to the men in the audience, worked matches, real challenges, money in his pocket from the side bets. He made his professional debut, as we would know it today, in 1863 against American Henry Buckle at the San Pablo Bullring. This is the first big match, main event style in Mexican history. Not 100% sure it's a work, but come on. He's facing off and against a uh, American wrestling on a big stage during this time. I don't see this being up and up. How about you guys? I don't know, that's... Uh, my thought is this, I mean, first of all, as far as the, the, the moniker, right? To be the first person to represent your people in this combat sport, that's almost a Herculean act in and of itself, right? The yeah. bravery, I'm thinking like when you're describing this to me, the, the, the image of like Jackie Robinson being the first black guy to play in the majors, that's that level of pressure, that level of you have your people's expectations on your back and you are carrying an entire nation with you. So I think that is actually a pretty apt name. And I got to imagine that work or shoot, that's going to be a hard guy to beat. Completely. Alcides would have a dominant career and would travel the world competing, performing, and would teach the art of Greco-Roman wrestling at his academy in Ciudad Mexico for years into his retirement. And Greco-Roman wrestling really did anchor into Mexican culture. You know, we see lots of wrestlers uh, who became big stars and that is their amateur background. It's not that Olympic style or folk style or catch style. Their base is Greco-Roman in Mexico. That's right. And one of the biggest names uh, with that style, his name is Negro Navarro, who came up in the late 70s, 80s. And to this day, he is viewed as a basically a master in his craft because he uses the old Greco-Roman style and he's all about the grapple and the counters and just basically he is to this day still using the nucleus of where this sport originated. Yeah, I've actually taken a couple of uh, Negro Navarro seminars and I would compare him to sort of like a Judo Jean LaBelle character in terms of he represents lucha libre as a legitimate martial art and still practice as a legitimate self-defense and fighting style with a theatrical emphasis and application where we know it purely as an art form for for shows and performance he actually incorporates the the greco-roman roots of actual grappling competition and it's pretty incredible to see it 
broken down and how it has evolved into that branch that has become the Lucha Libre we know now. In the 1890s, as Greco-Roman wrestling was taking hold of the Mexican athletic world, a pair of Italian strongmen, Romulus and Remus, toured the Mexican carnival and theater circuit, showing off bodies that would have made 1980s Vince McMahon come in his trousers. Romulus, whose real name was Cosimo Molino, teamed up with African-American boxer Billy Clark, who came to Mexico after finding very little opportunities in the United States at this point. And we all know why. Americans were very, very racist. Clark was a master showman who put on demonstrations, fighting wrestlers, other boxers, and of course, a wrestling bear. You're not over if you haven't fought a wrestling bear in the, in the 1890s. And this yeah. is why Mil Mascaras is so popular. He's wrestled bears, tigers. There's even a story where he scared away a shark on a beach with a single chop. Really? Who hasn't? In 1894, a 13-year-old boy named Enrique Ugartechia. How did I do on that one? That was perfect. Enrique. Flawless. I love Horchetta. Flawless. That stuff is so good. It's so amazing. Yes. Enrique Ugartechia saw one of these performances and he was inspired. He wanted to be Mexico's strongest man and a wrestler. He trained in Greco-Roman and the modified catch rules wrestling that became Olympic wrestling around that time. In 1903, he even had a match against his idol, Romulus, which could clearly be seen as a worked match, passing the torch to the first wrestling star of Mexican descent. Ugartechia traveled the world as a wrestling star and found the first gym in Mexico to specifically teach pro wrestling. He was even brought to the United States to judge the wrestling at the 1904 Olympic Games, which were part of the St. Louis World Fair. The fair overshadowed the Olympics, and most of the best wrestlers of Europe were not in attendance due to travel costs and other obligations. The fair almost featured a special bout, though, between Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt, but due to a schedule conflict, Hackenschmidt dropped off, and Gotch ended up facing uh, old foe in Tom Jenkins. But it's just crazy to think that Mexico's best wrestler was a judge, not a competitor, and America's best wrestler was in a World Fair special bout, not competing in the Olympics, which was barely watched, and many athletes from Europe didn't even take part in. Yeah, especially when you factor in that during that time, the Olympics had adapted catch rules, which was Strangler Lewis's specialty, which was the top wrestler from Mexico's specialty. Apparently, they, they felt he was he was qualified enough to be a judge. I don't understand. I mean, I can't imagine the process of the Olympic selection committee at the turn of 1900. But that seems really, really incredible that neither of those guys ended up in competition that year. Yeah, he was a younger man. I feel like Gotch was a situation where they were like, hey, do you want to be in the Olympics? And he said, how much? Yeah. yeah right. And that yeah, conversation, because, yeah. you know, as you'll yeah. hear when we do, an, we'll do an episode soon about Frank Gotch. That was a man who loved his bank accounts and always liked seeing it very full. And if you couldn't, uh, you know, help out on that, uh, that detail, he didn't give a shit what you were doing or what you wanted. I also feel like they might have also, the Ugatechia know, being a judge versus a competitor was the only way to get him there because they sponsored him. They paid for him to come there. If he was a competitor, he would have had to pay to go there. Yeah. At this point, athletics in the Olympics were purely amateur. You had to get there on your own dime. You trained on your own dime. You didn't have, you know, your Twitter followers getting you sponsors. It was a different ball game, sometimes literally if it was a ball game, so things went a little differently with the politics and who was involved and why. Whatever the case, 
he probably made some good money being a judge as opposed to a competitor. Whether he was happy about that, that detail is lost to history. At the same time, judo was taking Mexico by storm. As the first wave of black belts from the Kodokan were sent out as missionaries to teach the world about judo. As we covered in the previous episode, judo demonstrations were just variations of the circus challenges that made catch wrestling famous. You go out, you put on a demonstration with your uh, training partner, your best friend, some guy you work with all the time. You challenge the crowd. A tough guy steps forward. If he's a legitimate local, you know, you tap him out in front of all his friends. If you want a better show, you have, uh, you know, your other pal hiding in the audience who volunteers and they put on some sort of masterpiece, maybe with a screw job finish to get everybody to come back for the show tomorrow. So they pay to get in again. And this time there's going to be betting on the guy who gave the champion heck. And hey, guess what? You just got screwed. They walk off with your money as well. They should. Yes. Classic work in the mark. It's That's beautiful. Right. That's right. Soshihiro Satake and Mitsuya Maeda traveled Mexico putting on worked matches for the World Jiu-Jitsu Championship and created a great amount of interest in this new grappling sport from Japan. While Satake more or less disappeared from history, Maeda traveled south to Brazil where he changed the history of grappling by training a young man named Carlos Gracie. I guess his family might have done a thing or two within the Jiu-Jitsu world, but the impact of Judo on the Mexican style of wrestling was here to stay. Yeah, it makes sense because when you really break down the sub-genres of grappling, judo is very similar to Greco, except you are adding components. You are now adding the ability to not just use the upper body grips and leverages, but the ability to use your legs and foot sweeps and trips. So the art of these big upper body throws, you're now landing with a higher percentage because now you're allowed to add your legs. You're allowed to grip the cloth. And so to the layman from the outside, if you had a guy who's trained in judo and a guy who's trained in Greco, all things being equal, that guy who has the judo has additional tools available that other, a layman's not gonna see the difference. They're very similar visually in terms of the style, upper body throws, and it makes sense that that would become a new sensation on the heels of a Greco hot territory. True, because I know you've competed in uh, judo. Have you ever uh, wrestled anybody with a judo background? I have once, and it was a world of difference. Uh, going back to what you were saying, Chango, about the the many, uh, many more uh, weapons they have to use, whether it's the throw or the sweeps. Yeah. Um, it was like so different, but at the same time, interesting and good to work with because it also gives you like a sense like, okay, maybe I could train this sport too and use it in my repertoire. Yeah, totally. I remember the first time I got involved in judo, it was a judo black belt, like a very high level judo black belt was at our gym. And I was like, oh yeah, but I, you know, I'll get some okay wrestling skills, but like my Muay Thai, you know, clinch skills are gonna fucking like make this guy look dumb. Hey, why am I upside down, thud? Hey, why am I upside down? Thud. I had nothing. Like the, the throwing skills of a judoka are incredibly hard to counter unless you have an amazing base in, you know, in, in wrestling, like in more of a Greco-Roman style where you, you're used to being able to stand very much upright but not get thrown because you have those hips, you have that control of your base. So you can see how judo and Greco-Roman complement each other and make some very beautiful music. Plus the rules 
are more similar than a lot of people think. You know, people think that judo is just going to be very much like a jujitsu or submission wrestling match, but there's a lot of nuance to it. There's a different point system. And it's, I feel, a lot closer to catch wrestling with a gi than it is to contemporary judo and submission wrestling. What do you guys think? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think if you were to like categorize it as like a flavor of grappling ice cream, judo is the art that translates into the most beautiful throws, the most beautiful high angle five point flipping takedowns that you usually see, whether in MMA or in the individual sport itself. Like if you watch back all the Olympic competitions, usually the most spectacular takedowns that occur aren't in Greco, they're not in freestyle, they're in judo. And that is because of the rule set and the emphasis on creating an imbalance and then imposing that leverage with the timing, it creates spectacular throws. And you're right, it really is the perfect counter style to Greco because Greco is basically the mirror version of that using leverage and grit. And it's almost like, it's like water versus mud. And it's really interesting how you can see those two things playing off of each other. And I know what some of you are thinking with all of these weird stories of Italian strongmen, Japanese jujitsu players, a Mexican Hercules. You're probably wondering, where does the name Lucha Libre come from? To answer this question, we need to look at another war in Mexico. The Mexican Revolution, which broke out in 1910 when everyone, and I mean everyone, was sick of President uh, Porfirio Diaz's bullshit and his 31 years in office. That is right, 31 years in office. There was massive problems with the secession of presidency, national elections, you can kind of figure it out. As you can imagine, a decade-long armed revolution can be very disruptive to the entertainment and sporting industry. Not a lot of touring shows, not a lot of American wrestlers coming down, not a lot of things being able to go coast to coast without being shot up by revolutionaries. Fortunately, a pair of Italian businessmen, Giovanni Roselovich and Antonio Fournier, began promoting bare-knuckle boxing matches. Keep in mind, boxing under London Prize ring rules and similar early boxing rules allowed for throws and certain holds. It was much closer to an MMA fight on its feet than what you would think of with boxing, even if you're thinking of late-term bare-knuckle boxing in the early 1900s. What were these matches called? Free fighting or Lucha Libre. The people lined up to see these fights because people need distraction in tough times. People need to see some entertainment when the world is uncertain and horrifying. As you can imagine, it became much more lucrative to determine the outcome ahead of time, leading to worked matches. One thing, if you are a boxing fan, if you are an MMA fan, if you are a K1 fan, whatever legitimate fighting sport you're into, how many times have you seen big fights derailed because somebody got knocked out by Captain Goofball, the refrigerator part-time repairman? How many times have we seen champions lose fluke fights? Some goofball gets the belt, loses the belt the next time, that person drops the belt. Promoting real fights is a risky business because you cannot control the storyline. Yes, professional wrestling has proven that you don't let the truth of the competition get in the way of the story, darling, because the story is what draws you money. 
We don't want the Cinderella run of the underdog to be cut short. We want to see that feel-good story finish to its completion, and so rarely does that actually happen when you have the real world play out. Especially something as brutal as barely any rules, bare-knuckle fights in the early 1900s, where... Keep in mind what happens when you, you know, anybody who's ever been in a real bare knuckle fight knows how bad punching someone in the head with your bare fist can fuck your hand up. So you can have the greatest local hero in bare knuckle boxing throw a weird cross, catch a guy across the skull. And this is 1910. There's not an expert surgeon and a sports, uh, you know, therapist to help you out with this. He's not going to be able to throw a punch for eight fucking months. And now how are you going to sell tickets? It's easier to sell tickets on worked fights. Is it ethical? Is it moral? Is it legal in some places? Absolutely not. But we're not talking about right and wrong. We're talking about padding the bank account off of ticket buyer money. That's right. That's what most people do nowadays. Um, But yeah, I mean, what's the worst that can happen with a bare knuckle fight, right? Oh, I'm sure nothing, nothing ever bad happened in a bare knuckle fight south of the border, old chap. Oh, that's right. Because, I mean, who's going to cheat, right? It's not like someone's going to pull a pocket knife out of their trousers. At this point, wrestling was still primarily a circus and theater show. There really weren't too many promoters operating in the center or southern parts of the country. Most wrestling shows in Mexico were along the border, capitalizing on American and European wrestling shows, touring the southern states, and stopping by for paydays in Mexican shows just on the other side, places like Ciudad Juarez. The same holds true for boxing, which was illegal in most states in the mid and late 1800s, kind of like what we talked about with John L. Sullivan's big fight uh, when we discussed William Muldoon. By the way, Juarez is the best city in Mexico. If you think otherwise, you are wrong. I mean, hey, a a 10-year-old kid at a bar offered to sell me a gun, so I 100% agree with that story. Where else could you get the hospitality? (laughs) That's true. Fair point. Heck, in 1914, Pancho Villa wanted to fund his revolutionary efforts by hosting a world title fight in Ciudad Juarez between Jack Johnson and Jess Willard. It didn't come through due to having trouble getting across the border, but the fight happened in Cuba. So, you know, somebody made some money off of it. Unfortunately, it wasn't Pancho Villa. And, and, and you might be surprised that these things still occur in modern times. As, as recent as 2005, as we were talking about earlier, Um, At that time, I believe 13 states in the United States were sanctioning MMA. So as an up-and-coming fighter at that time in Southern California, a lot of the opportunities for me to fight were south of the border because that's where you were able to uh, take advantage of money fights because they weren't overly regulated. It it was like the Wild West, man, and and it is completely understandable that 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 would drive the sport at this time. Yeah, and one thing I want to say about Pancho Villa is the dude had a sweet mustache. I do have mustache envy. Like, if I could pull off just a mustache like that, you would not see this beard. During the revolution, we started seeing small wrestling promoters popping up, building on the success of the Lucha Libre boxing events to make regional wrestling promotions sort of like the indie wrestling scene we have in America today. We wouldn't see a huge promotion pop up until a man named Salvador Lutroth Gonzalez fell in love with wrestling. But before we get to that, let's discuss masked wrestlers. Yes, I was waiting for the masks. All right, now now we're getting ready to party, darling. 
Masked wrestling dates back to the carnival era in Europe, with masked grapplers being advertised from France to Russia to England. The gimmick would typically hint at the masked grappler being a member of the local royalty or aristocracy, hiding his identity as he challenged the dangerous wrestlers of the land. Whether he was a hero or a villain would depend entirely on the local view of the aristocracy. Post-revolution France, maybe not so popular. Pre-everything going to hell in uh, Russia, maybe a little more popular. Either way, it's a great gimmick. Wrestling is mythology. That's that's the the ba- that that really is what it comes down. Wrestling is emotional symbolism. It is cultural symbolism. So we have had those myths, those stories about how the masks of lucha libre being descended from concepts from Aztec warriors and such, and that. Unfortunately, isn't true. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful myth, as most cultural myths are. But really, we didn't see that start popping up until the 60s and 70s, when there was more of the indigenous people uprising, wanting to reclaim their culture and reassert their culture over the more Spanish-Mexican power structure that had existed there since the revolution. Yeah, and another one of those things... uh that they say it dates back to Aztec warfare is the fact that when Aztecs, um, when they conquered another, let's say another people, they would take their heads as trophies, where it translates into Lucha Libre, where they do the mask versus mask match, to where the loser of that match has to basically take their mask off and go their whole career without their mask. The first masked wrestler on record was the French wrestler whose name literally translates to masked wrestler. It pays to be the first, right? In the United States, the first famous masked wrestler was the masked marvel, La Veravia Emascarada. How was my Spanish? That's right, perfect Spanish. You would, if I was, if I would have closed my eyes and you were to speak Spanish, I'd swear you were a Mexican. Did you picture him? Did you did you picture me with a mustache? A mustache and like just a sweet sweet mullet. Nice. <laughs> uh, the Masked Marvel, a.k.a. Mort Henderson, that's not a great wrestling name. He had to come up with something else, who made his first appearance at the 1915 New York City Wrestling Tournament, which can be called the official birth of wrestling as show business because the whole thing was what? A hippodrome. Yes, a hippodrome oh is not a thing you get tested for after a night on the town where you wake up and do the walk of shame. It is actually a technical term for a work, nerds. And it is also not a robotic hippopotamus. I want that now. Oh, I had that in the in the pool, man. Dang it. <laughs> the year before, 1914, we saw the feature film The Masked Wrestler become a hit in cinemas. It inspired tournament promoter Samuel Rockman to create a masked wrestler who became an instant star at the New York City tournament when he faced off against Joe Stetcher. Joe Stetcher, an amazing wrestler of his time, a legitimate catch wrestler, who became a member of the Gold Dust Trio, who was instrumental in the transition of competitive pro wrestling to entertainment pro wrestling. Yeah, and I have to imagine that having a match with a masked opponent probably set off some light bulbs in terms of, aha, theatrical pro wrestling, you know? Yeah, or also like a small sense of fear in case like, say you were a new guy and you're gonna fight this guy in a mask, you're like, Okay, is this guy gonna, you know, yeah, stab right. me or like who is this guy? Yeah, because you have to imagine in America, especially at this point, this is the aftermath of 
the era of Gotch and Hackenschmidt. This is a point where nobody really believed wrestling. Despite that Hack and Gotch and Smith put on a legitimate contest, it just wasn't good. We'll talk about that in depth very, very soon. But people needed a reason to pay attention to wrestling. They needed a reason to care about wrestling. And after watching this movie, a promoter got a great idea. He introduced a masked wrestler into the tournament. It was very dramatic. It's going to be a whole story unto itself, but it did give wrestling in America a great idea that had already been a great idea in Europe for years. Masks were used to disguise stars who were slumming it or had burned out their draw but still needed work or wanted to work in different territories but needed to protect their image or record or maybe to not even or maybe they were under contract and didn't want their home promoter to know what the hell they were doing four states over wearing a mask getting pinned by the local hero. Masks didn't really become the icons they are today until the 30s, and we can give at least partial credit to a shoemaker named Antonio Martinez. Martinez was a wrestling fan who created specialty boots for luchadores. Up until then, luchadores wore boxing shoes or boots, which are not conducive to wrestling and ankle support. Um, you guys want to kind of fill us in on why that is the difference of how your ankle needs to be protected in boxing and needs to move versus wrestling. Yeah, well, uh, starting with the sort of the structure and the dynamics of the ring, the bounce of the ring, the way that the the ring is is set and the way that you have different pivot points in the ring and the way that you move, the things that you are asking your ankle to do. In boxing, you're talking about being able to shift your weight and slide out and a lot of rotational torque. Whereas in pro wrestling, you're more worried about the up and down give and sort of making sure that you don't get uh, over, like you, you wanna have structural support as opposed to lateral uh, mobility, I suppose would be the, the most breakdown, simplest breakdown of it. And similarly, if you play hockey, try ice skating in regular ice skates versus goalie ice skates and imagine trying to switch roles and you'll understand why this is important. Ankle support, arch support, impact uh, absorption, very different between boxing and wrestling. Similarly, why there is a big difference between boxing rings and wrestling rings. Because a lot of people will look at a ring and be like, oh yeah, we could do whatever in there. It's like, no, no, no. It has to have a very specific build. Uh, like if you got either of you guys ever wrestled in a boxing ring on accident? I have, I have. and it wasn't on accident. Um, it was totally on purpose. So they try to make it work by switching out the ropes to our wrestling ring ropes, which didn't fit. But the huge difference is basically taking a bump on a boxing ring is like going out and taking a bump on concrete. No give, uh, the ropes are super loose. So you basically have to work with what you got. So if you know your craft, if you know, if you're good at calling stuff in the ring, that would be better for you in a boxing ring because Jesus Christ, I swear, I shat myself when I took a bump on a boxing ring. And if you look at the early days of mixed martial arts and you see the number of debates and arguments about what the original octagon's padding was, how much padding versus how much, you know, uh, hardwood under it, what to make the texture because the sport dictates 
the safety, I guess would be the way to put it. Uh, because if it's too soft, you can dig in better for punches, but it's harder, harder to move quicker. Um, you know, if, if you're wearing shoes or if you're not wearing shoes, because if it's too much padding and you're wearing shoes, well, guess what? Your foot can stick, it can sink. Uh, if you wanna see how bad that can go, go to YouTube, uh, search Jason DeLucia ankle, and you'll see how bad an ankle can get fucked on a soft padded material if the rubber of your shoe sticks. Yeah, and I think it shows the necessity that the sport had created that we're talking what 50 years before the advent of Nike specialized sport footwear for Lucha Libre and professional wrestling was being created because of the sport specific um, stresses that that kind of uh, that athletes need and the protection that they need, you know? Yeah, because you, as you pointed out, this isn't current times where you can go on the internet and order from high spots of generic boots, or you find a gear maker and you say, hey, this is what I want. For the love of God, please actually send it. A big risk in pro wrestling is your gear if. actually fucking showing That's up. A big if. Or if it shows up looking like what you actually ordered. I remember one time um, a movie that I was trying to get made about uh, like a, you know, kind of a an homage to the old El Santo Blue Demon movies. I ordered some masks from a mutual friend of ours suggested one mask showed up looking amazing. The other one looked nothing like my design. I mean, literally nothing like it, not even in its basic structure. It just looked like he took some red cloth and drew on it with a black magic marker. But this is some guy down in Mexico I sent a, I sent cash to. What am I supposed to do about it? Either of you ever been ripped off by gear makers? Yes, I have. Um, actually, the dude that had been making my gear since my since I started my lucha career, um, I asked him for a mask with uh, some somewhat expensive materials. Charged me seventy bucks for it. To this day, he hasn't sent it to me, and I've already lost my mask in a match. So now I don't wear a mask to wrestle. And where did you lose that mask? It was at Lucha Libre Lass, of course, and if you weren't at that match, you are dumb and you missed a great match. Not to uh, you know put ourselves over too much, but I, I do find it very funny that you know you were planning on losing your mask going to uh, that face. Looking at that face, I kind of wondered why that decision was made. But a, I like to scare children. A, a, a different promoter really wanted him to do it there, and I believe your response was, "I'm not losing my mask in front of 25 people." Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> he said, "I will pay you." Um, all this much money to have that match here and I've been to his shows I've done his shows a lot like I'm not gonna lie I still do them every now and then but let's be real he only draws about 10 15 people on a good day the 25 people and I did tell him uh, thank you for the offer but I am NOT going to have the biggest match of my career in front of 25 people no disrespect to anybody no disrespect to the audience but at the same time like you got to look at it from our point of view like it is our craft and we value our craft we are not gonna basically throw our stuff to down the shitter just to make you happy yeah you say the biggest match of your career and that is obviously because you are wagering your mask that is your that is batman's cow that is your 
physical that is the physical embodiment of your persona a, a doctor who regeneration if you will yeah <laughs> in lucha libre culture when you lose your mask you don't just get to put it on the next day and pretend nothing happened unless of course you're uh, Rey mysterio in the 90s walk us through that uh what th that importance uh so it all goes down to what chango was saying the base of your character so in Mexico, some guys, uh, they even start training with their mask. They already designed it. They're training with it. It's basically their baby. It's who they are in the ring. Uh, they grow up with it and it basically makes you you. And there are many cases where some luchadors lose the mask and they become super successful. But there is also the majority of the cases where they lose their mask and they just get lost in the shuffle. People don't follow them no more like they used to. Um, they don't get the same response from even promoters. Uh, why? Because, well, you know, you were a bigger draw with your mask on. Now you don't have your mask. Eh, you know what? I'm sorry, but I'll pass. For better or for worse, the masks are costume. They are theater. They are super heroics. They elevate a person to an eye, a visual icon. You see people like El Santo, Blue Demon, uh, Mil Mascaras, Tierra Blas, where you look at them and they are something more than a person. They are a cultural icon. And when you take that mask away, they are now just a person. They have to reinvent themselves. And visually speaking, it's not as intriguing, it's not as exciting. Now you are something new, something different. And now you don't look as good on the posters. The kids don't want to buy your mask at the, uh, the merch table. These are all marketing and storytelling props that can elevate you sometimes beyond your grappling skills. Yeah, like you said, professional wrestling is mythology. And the mask in Lucha Libre has come to symbolize the mythology of that wrestler, of that character. And yeah, you're talking about reinventing the mythology of a wrestler when you remove their mask. You're taking away the visual embodiment of that elemental mythological creature. And it's really I, the way that that is embraced by Lucha Libre, that's a really hard thing to reinvent yourself. And it's not just super heroics. It's, it's everything in pop culture. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is a hat and a whip. Yeah. If it were any other way when we had old man Indiana Jones to come back to chase UFOs like a fucking 80 year old asshole, he would have not have had the hat, the whip and the jacket without the costume. He is something else entirely. He is less than he is without. It's important. It's psychological. It means something. Fuck, this story is absolutely crazy. I'm glad we're exploring this, but right now, we're kind of uh, going a little bit long and I realize there's a lot more to go. So this is now a two-parter. I didn't expect it to be a two-parter, but it certainly is. You guys ready to stick around for some more? Let's do it, let's do it, I'm ready. In traditional Lucha Libre fashion and style, we didn't make a proper tag, but here we are and now we're coming with the other half That's for you, right. the people. And right. let's just- It's customary in Lucha, de dos a tres caídas, two to three falls. This is fall number two, let's go. So we're gonna knock this one out in two straight falls like a real gosh darn champion. Sorry about the strong language there. Make sure you 
like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Down your language there, sir. I'm very sorry for the strong language. Check out what we're doing on YouTube. We'll be doing video versions of this with old timey photos and some half pours to do some kind of short stories with side quests that don't necessarily fit into the main episodes. We just love that you're a part of this journey with us. So listen, learn, and party for Chongo, for Electro. I'm Nick Gossert. We'll see you next week. Good see you night. guys. Good night, darling. Cut, French, martini. I know what chamos. Mm-hmm.